Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, the Eagles finally won the Super Bowl, and for Eagles fans, the dust still hasn't settled. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 101 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Valentine's Day, February 14, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America, Monday through Friday, with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The New York Knicks were the subject of more devastating fortunes as their lone star Kristaps Porzingis is out for the rest of the year and maybe more after suffering a torn ACL. Because of that, let's flash back to around this time last year when owner James Dolan decided to pick a fight with Knicks legend Charles Oakley. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. The New York Knicks are currently worth more than $3 billion, but the worth of owner James Dolan to the franchise is less than a large order of Dippin' Dots from the overpriced concessions at Madison Square Garden. Some highlights during Dolan's tenure include Isaiah Thomas, Mike Woodson, Mike D'Antoni, Amari Stoudemire, Mello's No Trade Clause, J.R. Smith's Pipe, and Derrick Rose's Knees. The best buzz in the past several years has been Jeremy Lin. Years of disappointment came to fruition last week when beloved Nick alum Charles Oakley visited Madison Square Garden to enjoy a basketball game in the vicinity of owner James Dolan. Mere minutes into the contest, Oakley was approached by security and asked to leave at the behest of Dolan and to the disbelief of Charles. Oakley was visibly irate with the garden security, and after an altercation and some shoving, Oakley was taken to the floor, arrested, and taken out of the garden in handcuffs. He was brought to the local precinct before getting released that night. When the video of the incident surfaced, Knicks fans were understandably irate. Oakley and Dolan had different sides to their tale, with Dolan going as far as a spot on the Michael K show, where he called out Oakley for his behavior, suspended him from the garden, and alleged that Oakley was a drunk. Dolan spent more time getting ready for the interview by way of his preparation binder that he brought along than he has in running a professional franchise, also admitting during the interview that he lets others take the reins of some basketball operations of the team. No shit. 
On Sunday, Dolan doubled down. After flipping through the Knicks' Rolodex, he surrounded himself with as many former players as possible, including Nick staff Larry Johnson and Bernard King, and the great Vin Baker, who played all but 41 games in the orange and black. Dolan was so desperate for faces, Baker told Huffington Post Jordan Schultz that Dolan sounded really sad and asked if he would come to sit with him. Baker added that he hadn't spoken to Dolan in 15 years. Perhaps the most surprising face to sit on Dolan's lap for the game was Latrell Sprewell, who played five seasons with the Knicks during their last run of success before getting shipped to the Timberwolves. Upon his return to the Garden, Sprewell spent the entire game spewing profanities at Dolan and hadn't spoken to him since. Dolan, however, Ever the pimp wooed Sprewell from his bouncer duties in Wisconsin to join him courtside as a further dig to the oak tree. Thankfully, NBA commissioner Adam Silver stepped into the matter like a gym teacher does to a scuffle during grade school recess. Dolan the bully was forced to explain himself during a sit-down with Silver and Oakley, along with a special guest via phone, Michael Jeffrey Jordan also a friend of Oakley's. News then came out that the ban from the garden was reportedly lifted, but Oakley simply asked the commissioner for an apology to the fans. If one apology does indeed come, Dolan should continue to include leading the Knicks to a downward spiral of disappointment. Instead of playing the kazoo for his band, J.D. and the Straight Shot, an instrument about as difficult as escaping a finger trap is to a small child, consider putting the franchise into able hands. Take your briefcase and your preparation binder and do as the hyenas once said to Simba. Run, James. Run away and never return. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll talk to a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan about what it means to have his favorite team finally win a Super Bowl. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who was your Valentine this year, and why? Now to a segment of The Bridge where we highlight some of the best quotes or sound bites from the latest week in sports. Here's this week's edition of... The what? What you say? First up, as we know, the Philadelphia Eagles shocked the world and slayed the beast that is the New England Patriots and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in Super Bowl 52. But what's gone lost in the shuffle is that two curses actually came true with that victory. There was Roan's curse on behalf of the Eagles on Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy and Tom Brady's carefree approach to the Madden curse after getting selected to the cover for Madden 2018. He addressed the curse on Facebook last year, breaking a mirror and walking through a ladder in the process. Whoops-a-daisy. Of course, Tom also won the regular season MVP at 40 years old and made it to his seventh Super Bowl, but let me have fun with this, will you? I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be on the cover of Madden NFL 18. Now, I've heard there are some of you out there who might be worried about something called the Madden curse. There's no such things as curses. It's a total myth, okay? I feel like you're not really getting it. See? All good. No curse. All good. We got this. What you say? 
And lastly, the city of Philadelphia had a celebration for the ages when the Eagles won the Lombardi Trophy, both on the night of the win and at the celebratory parade down Broad Street. Though the numbers for those in attendance were a little exaggerated to say the least, it was still quite the affair and brought us one of the greatest parade speeches we'll ever hear, courtesy of Eagle Center Jason Kelsey. He outdressed the Sultan from Aladdin, drank beer, and screamed chants with fans, and took to the podium to make just about everyone want to run through a brick wall once he was done. With great athletic ability, strength, teamwork, please welcome All-Pro Center, Jason Kelsey! I'm going to take a second to talk to you about underdogs. I know Lane and Chris just talked about this, but I don't think that it's been beat home enough. Howie Roseman, a few years ago, was relinquished of all control pretty much in this organization. He was put in the side, hey, hey, he was put in the side of the building where I didn't see him for over a year. Two years ago, when they made a decision, he came out of there a different man. He came out of there with a purpose and a drive to make this possible. And I saw a different Howie Roseman, an underdog, Doug Peterson. When Doug Peterson was hired, he was rated as the worst coaching hire by a lot of freaking analysts out there in the media. This past offseason, some clown named Mike Lombardi told him that he was the least qualified head coach in the NFL. You saw a driven Doug Peterson, a man who went for it on fourth and down, went for it on fourth and down in the Super Bowl with the trick play. He wasn't playing, playing just to go mediocre. He's playing for a Super Bowl. And it don't stop with him. It does not stop with him. Jason Peters was told he was too old, didn't have it anymore. Before he got hurt, he was the best freaking tackle in the NFL. Big B was told he didn't have it. Stephen Wisniewski ain't good enough. Jason Kelsey's too small. Lake Johnson can't lay off the juice. Brandon Brooks has anxiety. Carson Wentz didn't go to a Division I school. Nick Foles don't got it. Roy Clement's too slow. They got it anymore. Jay and John can't stay healthy. Tory Smith can't catch. Nelson Aguilar can't catch. Zach Gers can't block. Red Selleck's too old. Brandon Graham was drafted too high. Vinny Curry ain't got it. Bo Allen can't fit the scheme. Michael Cummings can't fit the scheme. Nigel Bradham can't catch. Jalen Mills can't cover. Patrick Robinson can't cover. It's a bunch of driven men to accomplish something. We're a bunch of underdogs. And you know what underdogs is? It's a hungry dog. And Jeff Stalin has had this in our building for five years. It's a quote in the O-line room that has stood on the wall for the last five years. Hungry dogs run faster. And that's this team. Bottom line is we wanted it more. All the players, all the coaches, the front office, Jeffrey Lurie, everybody wanted it more. And that's why we're up here today, and that's why we're the first team in Eagles history to hold that freaking trophy. And you know who the biggest underdog is? It's y'all, Philadelphia. For 52 years, y'all have been waiting for this. You want to talk about underdog? You want to talk about a hungry dog? For 
52 years, you've been starved in this championship. You know what's up. You know what's up. Everybody wonders why we're so mean. Everybody wonders why the Philadelphia Eagles are, aren't the nicest fans. If I don't eat breakfast, I'm fucking pissed off. just said, fuck you! This week's guest in Eric Blomain, a friend of the show, my fantasy football league commissioner, and a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan of three decades. There were several possible avenues to take for this week's guest, but after celebrating 100 episodes last week, I thought it would be fun to go back to the roots of the show before there were titans in the sports media world and former players and such when I instead chatted solo or with friends to fill up the time of the show. Eric first joined the bridge all the way back in 2015 for episode 16, and when I decided the Eagles deserved a hat tip on the show, just like they deserved a hat tip for winning their first Super Bowl, it was an easy choice to bring him back. We'll talk about when the ball started rolling to make up this current Eagles team, keeping the faith after Carson Wentz's injury, the atmosphere for the divisional playoff game at the link, the Super Bowl game and the win, celebrating at the parade, and more. And as an aside, you'll hear mention of a Brian throughout our chat. That would be Eric's younger brother, who assuredly would also like me to tell you that he too likes the Philadelphia Eagles. Eric doesn't use Twitter, so his identity will have to remain a mystery aside from what you can picture in your mind, which is someone tall and for this purpose wearing an Eagles jersey. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Eric Blomain, friend of the show, Fantasy Football League commissioner, and an Eagles fan. Eric, thanks for coming back on the show. How have you been? It's been a couple of weeks, let me tell you. It's been uh, one for the ages. I can say I'm now probably just now re-entering the frame of mind where I could even do a show like this, uh, kind of riding high on the euphoria and maybe one or two substances in there too along the way, but adrenaline most notably. But yeah, it's it's been quite a ride, and like I, I think this is been pretty much the most interesting and awesome two weeks of my entire life actually yeah this is a very interesting case study to say the least when it comes to fandom you're also a phillies fan you've experienced the world series championship with the phillies but this is something different this feels different this has felt different i think for everyone involved when it comes to the philadelphia eagles from the coaching staff to the owners to the players all the way down to the fans this is definitely one of those special years similar to what the Chicago Cubs did recently in baseball that you'll remember for the rest of your life, really. And I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about what the journey has been, because in a sense, you've been front and center for a lot of it, whether it's in the stadium, out of the stadium, running into players, as you commonly do out of the stadium yep. as well. And we'll get yep. into that as we go along. But I figured we could turn back the clocks a little bit to get started and just talk about how this team came to be. We remember the hemming and hawing that happened when Doug Peterson was hired as the head coach of the Eagles. People thought he would be an Andy Reid 2.0 in a sense and that it wasn't a great hire. It took him a little while to get his sea legs under him in a sense 
with where he wanted the team to go, how Carson Wentz would develop as his young quarterback. But it seemed like one day we woke up and the Eagles were legit. Yeah, it's it really is remarkable. And I'm someone that, you know, it's not easy to necessarily admit. I have to eat a lot of crow because I was a Doug skeptic uh, pretty much up until this season. Uh, and basically, I, you know, had a list of guys in my head that I wanted. Ironically, some of those guys were Patriots assistant coaches at the time. Uh, maybe I was a year early on that. But, um, you know, I thought, Doug, you didn't have the experience. And, yeah, I thought, why would we make a U-turn and go back to the Andy Reid school? Uh, after, you know, we kind of, yeah, chip didn't work out, but, you know, we, we kind of, as an organization made a decision to go away from that a couple of years ago when we hired chip and then said, well, we're just going to make a U-turn and get kind of a poor man's Andy Reed. How is that going to get us over the hump? Uh, but really like coming in from the start of this season, like things just felt different. Like I think Doug last year, you saw some things you liked, some things you didn't like some, some, you know, risks he took, you think, what is he doing? I think he needed to get kind of his sea legs under him a little bit to kind of pick his spots and get some more like in-game judgments. But I think like the bones were there last year, but no one saw kind of the coaching transformation because I think he got the players to buy in and really like that happened early on. Cause even last year, the players loved him, but his in-game management that we saw like to a T in the Super Bowl really evolved from year one to year two. And it helps, obviously, when you got, you know, an all-world QB dropping dimes like Carson was doing this season but and a defense that can shut everyone down. But I'm not taking anything away from Doug. Doug, from year one to year two, made one of the biggest improvements I think I've seen in a coach. And what's funny is when you hear him talk, when you see him, he kind of looks like a dad coaching, like, you know, club soccer or something. Like, you know, he kind of wears the visor. Kind of, You can picture him like a windsuit or something. But really, I think he's, like, stupid like a fox. Like, like I think – you know, he kind of like comes off as maybe this guy you take lightly. And then, then he's running the Philly special, you know, a mix of balls and brains there and really just kind of taking you by surprise as, as dare I say it, if it's overused at this point, an underdog kind of a thing. I think he sneaks up on people. So it's really just been kind of the, one of the craziest seasons I've ever followed. And you mentioned 08 Phillies. It is a different animal, but I think the city remembers that 08, Phillies, when they won, came together in the snap of a finger. Like, no one's like, yeah, they made the playoffs the year before, got bounced in the first round. Like, the expectations were not that high. And then one day you just realize, like, maybe this is just how it happens. Maybe when it happens, it is easy because it, it's magic a little bit. Because when we had the early uh, 2000 Eagles, where every year it was Super Bowl or bust, Super Bowl or bust, everything was hard. It was like, oh, we made it to the divisional round, we won, but then we lose the NFC Championship game oh, we lose another NFC championship game. You know, everything was hard. And it was like expectations and misery, like kind of like a drudgery. This was like a joy. Like it came out of nowhere. It all clicked. And then it just happened. And it was like a little bit of magic. So I do see some parallels to 08. Um, And, you know, good things happen all at once, I guess. But uh, at least that's how it's worked in Philly. Because those Eagles years with Andy Reid, it was just the opposite. If nothing came together, nothing clicked, everything was a struggle. And we ultimately never made it work. But this nothing was a struggle. Uh, you know, yeah, they had injuries, but no one ever stopped believing in this team. It was something special that just clicked, came together, and you just had this feeling that it was going to end the way it did, which really is amazing. We know that the biggest storyline, aside from the team's regular season success, the momentum that they were gaining, how Carson Wentz was playing in his sophomore season, completely changed when he tore his ACL in week 14, <laughs> and the red <laughs> flags went up. Everyone thought that this might be it for the Eagles. What are they going to do with Nick Foles as their backup quarterback? They can't possibly do well in the playoffs. If they make the playoffs, they need home field. All the storylines went in completely different directions when that injury happened. So I'm interested to know what your initial thoughts might have been upon that injury and if you ever expected something like this being able to happen after it. Yeah, I was one of the doomsdayers. I, I just let out a moan when you said that because it just like it, it kicks me in the stomach every time I uh, I hear about poor Carson's knee. Um, yeah, it, it, I was one of the the doomsday people. I, it's funny. I I do remember a conversation with your cousin Mike though. Uh, one time, it was almost like I, I wonder if Mike would remember to corroborate this because I, I I'm sure it happened. But it was we were talking about like how Wentz can do a lot with his feet. And how, like, if Wentz were to get hurt, how the offense would be completely different. And I remembered saying, like, yeah, Foles is kind of a, a, a more of a pocket passer. But I remembered under Chip, he ran a lot of read options. So I remember saying, like, oh, well, like, 
I remember a few keeper plays where like Foles would get the defense off balance and be able to, you know, run with it in the read option. So maybe he could do some of the same things more so than like a Chase Daniels would have last year if we had him still. So I remember saying like, well, may- maybe it wouldn't be okay. And Mike's like, yeah, but you got to hope Wednesday's healthy. This was like way back in like October. So I kind of remember this like almost like prophetic conversation that I'll have to ask Mike if he remembers. But no, when it happened, I was completely off the off the rails, um, do- uh, doomsdayer. Um, I thought, you know, yeah, at that point, you know what, you have 13 wins or something. You're probably going to get home field. Um, but, you know, you figure like, yeah, maybe you get a win, maybe you get two wins, maybe you make it to a Super Bowl. But, like, you know, you, your expectations change. You figure you'll get a home playoff game and, and have a puncher's chance to win that. But beyond that, like, I didn't really have high hopes of anything, really. Even the first half – so I was at the Falcons game, actually, the, the playoff game. And even that game, the first half, he was just missing open throws. He had the jitters. And I was telling Brian, like, I, I lost all my doubts about Doug Peterson when he came out in that second half and started running all the read options. Because, I, I, you know, with the Mike conversation, I alluded to it. I remembered all the read options stuff under Chip and how good he was in that offense. And I'm like, I was secretly hoping that Doug would go back to that. And sure enough, that's really all we saw the rest of the postseason pretty much was lots of lots of Foles read options. And he really coached to his strengths. And that's something Reed would never have done. Reed would have just gone down blazing with his original game plan and and kind of forced his players to conform to him, not the other way around. Where Doug knew his players, knew what wasn't working, knew what would work, and did it the whole postseason. So all my doubts vanished when Doug went to the read option in that second half and they beat the Falcons. Even then, every game, you know, I thought the Vikings – I was less worried about the Vikings than the Falcons, but I really didn't think intellectually they were going to beat the Patriots. You know, I had a feeling that this team felt special, but, you know, I, I never imagined what would happen, and definitely not the way it happened. <laughs> So no positive vibes for Nick Foles, even though you at the time were probably one of 10 people in the world to own an all pro Nick Foles jersey. <laughs> yeah, I've had it sitting there for three years thinking, well, maybe he'll do an autograph signing someday. And as like a novelty, I'll get it signed. And then I wore it for all the playoff games in the Super Bowl. Uh, but no, I never thought, you know, I thought, yeah, sure. With a defense and, you know, like Trent Dilfer won the Super Bowl, like, you know, I thought we would have a puncher's chance, but never someone that was going to lay 303 passing touchdowns and one receiving touchdown on the Patriots. Never any in my wildest dreams would I have predicted something like that. I thought we we would win with like 150 passing yards, two t- passing touchdowns, and like a pick six or two or something if we were going to win like those kind of games. I never thought that he would actually be carrying our team. What was the atmosphere like as someone that attends games regularly? I'm sure this probably had a different feel to it, especially in the game before the Super Bowl. So uh, my slight correction, I was only at the Falcons game, so I can't speak to that. Brian was at both. So I I do have uh, secondhand knowledge of both. So I can speak to it. Basically, uh, I was at the NFC Championship game where they lost to the Bucs. And I remember what that was like. I was a kid, but I, I remember what that was like. And again, it, it was it was that that kind of like comparison I was I was describing, where we were kind of we we expected to win the eagle the 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 Buccaneers game, but we lost. And in the in this case, we kind of like didn't have a any expect expectation at all of what was going to happen when Foles got out there. There was tons of you know, Eagles chants and saying you know the cold weather was going to work against Matt Ryan and. The energy was unbelievable, but, you know, it was still, like, couched in this uncertainty. And, you know, the first half where we muffed the punt and Foles was missing easy throws, no, no one really had a warm, fuzzy feeling, but the, the energy was still, like, unbelievable. Like, the, everyone was living and dying by every snap. And that that last goal line stand w- was directly below us. We were we, we had seats behind that end zone, and, like, I, I, I don't know how I survived that, to be honest. Like, my, I felt like I was having a heart attack on every single play. It wasn't like any game I'd ever been to, including that NFC Championship game uh, way back in the day. And I think that just speaks to how, how different this season was. Like, we we believed, uh, but it was like a trust but verify kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't that we were joyful about it, though. It wasn't that we were, like, expecting to win and waiting for the other shoe to fall uh, and, and let us down. It was we were hoping for the miracle. And I think that was, like, a, a good way to describe it, a better place to be as a city. And, that, and that's what ultimately – carried us through so for the couple weeks leading up to the super bowl as a philadelphia native now 
what was the sense like of the city if you were walking around or talking to other Eagles fans or just the atmosphere in general preparing for this game? I know a lot of people can't afford to make it out to the Super Bowl in Minnesota, so we're shortly planning to watch it at bars or around local Johns. But just being around the city itself, I'm sure, was another feeling that was much more different than you've experienced. Oh, yeah. No, everything was jerseys everywhere and like, and yeah, there's always this energy, but like people were doing chants in the streets and like high-fiving strangers, uh, like, you know, go birds. The, one of the like Anthony Gargano on 97.5, the fanatic tried to like get this go birds thing to catch on where it was just like kind of go birds. You got to say it like that. Like, so like that's all over the place. Like people are doing that. Um, and like the whole city just rallied around the scene. There were billboards everywhere. Like you couldn't escape it. It was, it was like everywhere. And it was, it was almost to a frenzy when Wentz was healthy and they were like blowing up and, and like that was the kind of where it hit its peak. And then like the city was in mourning for about a week after that when, when he went down and, and it never really even recovered until after Christmas because the Raiders game was suspect. The Cowboys game was kind of suspect. So the city remained in mourning for that. But then when it hit that upward trajectory again, as the playoffs progressed, it got to an even higher level than it had been when Carson was there. By the time the Super Bowl rolled around, it was like the energy like in the city was like buzz. The whole city was buzzing with anticipation, but also with like with almost like I don't want to say arrogance, but with confidence. Like we we believed we were gonna beat the Patriots. Like we were afraid of the Patriots. You know, when Brian and I saw Brady walking out of the locker room on that kind of shot they did of him leading the team out, we were like, Oh my God, like <laughs> I just almost crapped my pants. But uh, you know, we we had this confidence in the city that again, we never had before because we never saw anything like this before. So we really didn't know how to handle it, but we kind of were all confident. It was, it was unbelievable. Super Bowl 52, the Eagles do exactly what they have to in building a lead against New England and then keeping their foot on the gas with that lead and no greater play to emphasize that than the Philly special, which has been played thousands of times and will go down in infamy both for Eagles fans at just the point in the game the miraculous play call of Nick Foles just being incredibly confident with saying it Peterson agreeing right away executing it and then of course for Patriots fans screaming that it was an illegal formation and shouldn't have counted in the first place at that point in the game, heading into halftime, what is the feeling like as an Eagles fan? Was that play one of those miraculous, we really needed one of those to stay in this game, this might be our year type things, or was it still, this is Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, they're probably going to find a way to make this a game again? No, but when that happened, I mean, it, it was almost, you could almost like juxtapose it perfectly with like the Jaguars last week, taking a knee to end the half as like, as, as kind of like perfectly indicative of why the Jaguars lost and why I think the Eagles won in terms of the approach. Like, you know, the Jaguars had the ball at the end of the half, kneeled it out. Doug Peterson has a fourth and goal to end the half where he could just take the points and said runs that trick play. So when that happened, no, we, we like, it, it felt, it felt great. It felt like we're up by 10. It's Tom Brady, but like we're, our defense is going to start the field in the second half, force a three and out, and we're going to run away with this. And obviously, it didn't play out that way. Gronk just came out and crushed us on that first drive, and and it was a game for, from then on till the end. But no, that that halftime like was was a pretty confident one. I would say cautiously optimistic was was the mood. Uh, but then it got shattered real quick when the second half started. Let me tell you. But no, that that play, you know, people are complaining about it. I you know I saw a, a post. I forget who who tweeted it, but it was like. Now, anyone else think it's funny that Patriots fans are complaining about people cheating in the Super Bowl? So, uh, you know, I, I don't think they necessarily have a lot of credibility about talking about the illegal formation. You know, it's it's, a, it's always a judgment call. Refs miss something. I think the refs made a conscious decision to let us play, uh, let both teams play. And I think the product on the field was a lot better. I think, you know, if every game was officiated like that, the NFL would be more watchable. Uh, and I think just that that's why they didn't call the illegal formation. Like, I, I think it was a judgment call and they just elected not to make those kinds of calls. Um, so, yeah, no, the mood at the half was, was we're going to do this. They're, they're going to do it. I, I think I even like hugged Brian and said, they're, they're going to do it. Um, but, you know, then again, that got shattered real, real quick in the second half. Was there a moment in the second half where the unfortunate familiar feelings of Eagles, events 
kind of creeps in of, is this really going to happen again? Are we really going to blow this? Oh yeah, it was one that it was when the Patriots took the lead by one. Uh, when, when they took that lead, uh, I kind of told Brian like, we're not getting that lead back. It's uh, it, it's not going to happen. And and you know, Brian was saying, no man, they're going to keep moving the ball. I'm like, how many of these does Foles have in them? How many can we keep asking them to do? Uh, you know, and 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 I guess he he had he had one more uh, in and but no, I, I was in full doubt mode then. That was the first time in the whole game I lost faith that they were going to do it. But no, they they went right down. Yeah, they went for it on fourth down. I, I people said that was the more questionable of the two going for it. I, I don't think so. I, I always feel like you know what whatever it's Madden, but you know that kind of thing when I play Madden or when I think about it, like if you're over the forty yard line your own 40 like i think it's it's theoretically not terrible to go for it like i would never go for it to put the other team in field goal range but you know like really you're, you're trading a possible possession for maybe tw- you know if the if the kicks a touchback for maybe 20 30 yards of field positioning like i really don't think the the numbers are, are quite as dire as people think traditionally thinking it is there so i think it's a mix of analytics and aggression uh in there you know i, th- I think we do have like an analytics department that doug consults on certain things but uh, you know, I think I think there's some math in there that that supports it, um, but it definitely flies in the face of the conventional wisdom. Uh, but you're not going to beat the Patriots punting the ball there. That that's for damn sure. So you know, I, I think again, I, I think he he coached the game he needed to coach. You know, he I think if the defense was playing well, you would have seen a different coach coaching effort from from Doug. Basically, I, I think he did what he had to do, which again I think speaks to him as a coach. Andy Andy Reid and Chip Kelly could never adjust what was going wrong in a game i think doug has a great feel for what's going right and what's going wrong he knew his defense was wrong he knew his offense was right so he's like here we need to live and die by this offense right now because my defense isn't giving me anything and you know that's not what he went with and that's that's what carried the day you mentioned the defense which in a sense had carried the team to several wins throughout the season had been well exceeding expectations, playing incredibly solid, didn't have its best game against New England in the Super Bowl, but did come up with the one play it needed to come up with with that strip sack of Tom Brady. Though he still gets the ball back, though he still has an opportunity to have another miraculous Hail Mary be caught and perhaps a two-point conversion to tie things up, the ball gets batted around, it hits the ground of the end zone. What happens? Oh, oh man, there's a lot there, but that strip sack was, I think, one of the most beautiful plays I ever saw. Like, I almost didn't believe what I was seeing when the ball was on the ground, and Barnett scooped it up so fast, it was actually hard to see what what actually happened there. But that that was when I, you know, I know the game didn't end, not by a long shot, but that was when like everyone in my party that night was going nuts, and Brian and I were just like like locked in an embrace. I was screaming, man, they're gonna do it. They did it. Like this, it's over, man. It's over. And he was like, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm like it's over. They, they're gonna win. That was when I knew that 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 I th- I think that they were gonna win it, uh, and I know like theoretically there were chances, but but I had a feeling that 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 was it. And you know when Brady got back, you know you thought maybe he's gonna do it, but even then you know I I, I didn't I you know the two to get that touchdown into two that that's a lot, and so I still had faith that our defense were, was gonna make one more play. They, they actually didn't. They they kind of misplayed the hail mary to be honest, but um. You know, fortunately, it didn't end up hurting them. So when that ball hits the turf, I, I was just like stunned. I, I didn't really know. I think like we there's apparently a Philly tradition that you bang pots together when you know things happen, like on New Year's and stuff. So a lot of the radio guys were saying that's what they were going to do. So we got pots and like banged them together at my parents' house and kind of ran outside in the neighborhood screaming a little bit and like. Uh, but I was home in Scranton, so we we kind of didn't take to the streets abroad or anything like that. But. Uh, you know, we, we really just were in awe. Like, I, I don't, I don't even really remember exactly what happened to be honest. It, it was, it was just, it was so amazing. You know, like the, someone, uh, I keep talking to Anthony Gargano. He's one of my favorite uh, journalists in the city here, but he, he, he described it as before the game that we had to bleed to feel the bliss is basically what he said. So, and that, and really, I think that that's why it means so much because we had so many of these letdowns. You obviously live in Philadelphia and as yes. a lifelong Eagles fan, as someone who knows many lifelong Eagles fans and is now surrounded by many lifelong Eagles fans. What do you think this means for the Philadelphia Eagles fan? Not even necessarily the franchise, which of course was desperate to win a championship, but for the fan that's been through so much, especially for older fans that 
haven't seen anything like this. It ends not a curse, but it ends one of the longer droughts in the National Football League. Finally getting one. What do you think the sense is for what this means for the Eagles fan? It's pretty cool because it means it seems to mean so many things to so many different people. Like one of the surprising things that you don't necessarily think of is a lot of people were talking about their loved ones that died without seeing it and how they kind of miss those people. And that's kind of an angle I never really thought about. But, uh, you know, I've been listening to a lot of talk radio, hearing what it means to people like as they call in. I think the biggest thing is like the, the notion that no one could ever take this away from us, that like in the past we'd be arguing with a Cowboys fan or something and they'd be like, oh, well, your trophy case is empty. Like, talk to you later. And then, like, you know, we, we, we pretty much, like, feel like a like a, like a a half franchise, you know, that we, we really, you like, they'd be right. Like, we really can't be a part of this. Like, you know, you can dismiss us with that joke that easily. And now, you know, that's 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 by the wayside forever. You know, now we, we've got a Super Bowl. We now have, like, a championship in all four major sports. There's, I think, only five cities that have done that. Uh, you know, it, it was almost like the one thing missing from our sports city. And not just our sports city, but from – Philadelphia itself because you know football runs in the blood here so you know I I think now the city also holds its head high that you know we're you know we're on par with New York and Chicago and you know LA LA's not really got NFL stuff going on in the last you know couple decades they are now but you know but you know what I'm saying like we're, we're on par with these major metropolitans that now you know actually trickles into like the city and you know We've had all these good things like the draft and the Pope visit and uh, and the Democrat National Convention and, and now a Super Bowl. So, you know, keep the good press going to Philly. Keep repping us as like an awesome place to live, this kind of foodie city, cosmopolitan city that it is, and not this kind of depressed, rocky, like almost like monstrosity that kind of had the rep of being 30 years ago. Uh, so I think there's lots of good for lots of people. And it's it's really just individualized to you know to each person and it, it's special to everyone in their own way it's just awesome you didn't get to take to the streets with the happy mob that flooded philadelphia after the super bowl win which was one of the most fascinating things you'll ever see it was like the pope was coming into town but it was just people celebrating the eagles super bowl which was well deserved but you did make it down for the parade, a similar type of shindig with more people even then to celebrate this championship. And I know I'm asking a lot of set the scene questions or what was that like questions, but I think they beg to be asked. You're at this parade with, it seems like every every Eagles fan I know and probably that you know, the whole city seemingly is there set the scene for what that day was like for you and for everyone in general. I think the, the funniest part for me was, so I'm only working in Jersey right now on a, on a rotation. And um, the prevailing thing that whole week was all the people that live in Jersey were like, how are we going to get there? So like something is something as simple as transportation was nearly impossible for a lot of people. Like I, I was lucky that I lived about a mile or you know, a mile and a half from, from where it was going to be. So I could walk. I actually, in the morning, I walked home, but in the morning, I actually Ubered there and was able to get there. But basically, there were like two-hour waits for the trains, and they, and they were closing all the roads at 845, so no one could get in. It really, the, the whole city kind of was – it wasn't like the the parade was happening in the city. The city was happening in, in the parade, if that makes sense. Like, everything was, was pretty much, like, revolving around that for that day. And, and so, right, the, every, a lot of things were closed. All the schools were closed. Uh even a lot of the surrounding suburbs closed schools. It really was, was again, a, a city catering to a parade. Um, it, it really was, was amazing. So pretty much you, you couldn't really get a, a great spot unless you were there. People were camped out at like four in the morning at, for an 11 a.m. parade or something. It, it, it really was unlike anything I've ever seen. So I got, we got there around like nine o'clock and got a decent spot. Not, not great, but, but good to see and kind of be in the crowd and, it was like a low maintenance spot. So we could kind of just hang out, uh, you know, and vibe a little bit and, uh, and just kind of enjoy the scene. And yeah, there were just spontaneous Eagles chants. There were people climbing up on, they were using garbage trucks as like almost a crowd barriers. People were like swarmed on the garbage trucks. People were climbing on all the statues. Uh, people were, you know, kind of drinking and drugging a little bit in front of cops. And there was kind of just a happy atmosphere. No one was getting really getting busted unless they were causing problems. 
it was really just a joyful day. You know, we, we, there were a few Patriots fans there, which I didn't really understand. Brian and I kind of got in one's face a little bit. Not really sure why you would, you would go looking for trouble like that. But, you know, it was us and two million of our best friends out there just, uh, just loving it. And, um, you know, the free beer dilly dilly was going on. And then, you know, the speeches started and Kelsey brought the house down. Uh, it, it really was, was surreal seeing, you know, how Philly this team was like, you know, he, he, everyone kind of sees, Oh, why is he wearing the silly costume? That's a mummer's costume, which is like a big, uh, parade that happens every day, at, every year on new year's day in the city where it's like people, there's like comedy skits and it's all for charity and stuff. And it, it goes back, you know, a hundred years in the city. So, it, it's it's all these people like kind of owning the identity of the, of the city uh and so it really it, it was amazing and and that's one thing the team really did a good job of too like Alshon one time like was wearing a Brian Dawkins shirt like in, in the locker room and people were talking about Jerome Brown like the team really like owned the city and the legacy of the city and and that was why I think this team was so loved and why the fans, you know, kind of had all that energy that, cause we know all the history. We, you know, we're, we live and die by the city, but you know, the, for the players, it didn't seem like it was just a place to live. Like they're, they're invested too. And so it was really just all like a big, like unity fest. You've also had the opportunity to either run in with some of the players or meet some of them at autograph sessions and meet and greets Carson Wentz, Alshon Jeffrey, Ajayi the other day, the list goes on yep. and on, and I will miss far too many if I try to name them all. But do you have a fun anecdote from a player or players from this year's team from getting to meet them and taking a quick picture or something that you've happened to come across this year? One of them was, uh, there's a couple actually, but the, the one most recently was you mentioned Alshon. Uh, and, I, and I actually just alluded to this where I said Alshon was wearing the, uh, the Dawkins shirt in the locker room and how he's all up on Eagles history. When I met Alshon, I was wearing a, a throwback Kelly Green uh, Randall Cunningham jersey, and he was just like, I asked him if he took a picture, and he's like, only because you're wearing that awesome throwback Cunningham jersey, man. That's 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 amazing. So like he you know, he 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 really was like you know all about like you know knowing who number eleven was. Like I was wearing a coat over it, so he couldn't see the back. So it's not like he had to cheat. Like you know he knows the history. He knows who these guys are. Uh, so that that was really cool that you know he complimented the jersey like that, and then. Um, I uh, I actually went to uh, meet Legarrette Blunt right after my uh, right after a job interview. So I was wearing a black business suit, and uh, so I get up there, and he's like, "That's a big ass guy in a suit," <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, that's what they tell me." And so it's, I, I can't say I've ever been called a big dude by an NFL player before, so so, so that was kind of fun. Uh, but really, yeah, there there weren't too many. You know, there's always in the NFL. Like one of the reasons I love autographs is like you know you kind of get a feel for how they are in real life. Because, you know, the media it makes everyone look like a good guy on, on the game day and stuff. But, you know, there's definitely a, a mixed bag with that. But there's really – there aren't too many people on this team that, that I think are actually, like, kind of two-faced or fake about it. Like, you know, our quarterbacks are as good as they appear. Like, Wentz, Wentz and Foles are good guys. Um, you know, all the other teams – like, Malcolm Jenkins, stand-up guy. You know, all, all these players that look like they're stand-up guys, they back it up. And, and they're generally good to the fans. Um, and, yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. You know, over the last couple of years, I've pretty much met – all of them there, you know, there's some guys in the defense, some kind of random people I, I haven't, but kind of been fortunate to meet the vast majority of the roster at this point. And, and yeah, they, they back it up and I'm now, you know, now I have a new collection to chase. You know, I've got most of the away Phillies. Now I've got to work on getting most of the, the 55 man roster, which I'm sure will be fun, but yeah, it, it, it's been great. Yeah. You are one of the few people that could spot Nick Foles in a crowd and know that was him. I was joking when he went to Disney world, I was interested to see who knew who he actually was. If he wasn't wearing Eagles attire, camera crews weren't following around be like, that's, that's an interesting looking dude and just carry on with their everyday life. But you have quite the gift of knowing who's who and being able to spot them outside of their football uniforms or any uniforms as well. So this ends things here with the question that now will be plaguing Eagles fans and the team itself in the offseason heading into the 2018 season, which is can they do this again, especially now getting back who could have been an MVP candidate in Carson Wentz? What happens with Nick Foles? Can they keep this team core together and do what they need to do to repeat or at least make this something where you might be able to win two out of three or – 
try to keep what this is going and not just have this be a one-off. The only detriment that I saw to the Carson Wentz injury is that he unfortunately doesn't have that playoff experience or wasn't able to at least get it on the field, where even if things didn't go well this year, you could at least say, well, we got to, say, the NFC Championship game. He knows what it's like to play in the playoffs. He'll be fine with that pressure, and we can go forward. We didn't get to see that, but as we saw, it doesn't make – much of a difference because Nick Foles didn't have that postseason experience and he had two of the greatest games in postseason history to close out the season and win the Super Bowl so maybe people put a little bit too much weight on that but the question will be can this team do it again what do they need to do to do it again but I think we can safely say the 2018 season We'll have a lot more optimism than the sometimes usual pessimism that comes with Philadelphia sports. Yeah, I mean, it's it, expectations are high, so we got to be careful that we don't get you know so caught up in expectations now that we that we lose the fun that this year was because you know we really want to keep it fun. Uh, you know, we we don't want I, I don't know that I want to touch the the hotbed issue of uh, the Bruski uh, Eagles beef going on right now about approach and whether or not you could have fun and, and repeat, but. Basically, you know, I want to keep the fun in it. But, you know, in terms of Wentz, yeah, I mean, it's it's a setback. You don't know physically is he going to be there. You know, right, the experience is a factor. But one thing why I never doubt him is he is, I think, the hardest worker that uh, in the league. I mean, I know Brady gets the rep for it too, but Wentz is apparently also a machine on that same kind of caliber. And I can point to, like, a, a very direct thing on that. Like, basically, his, for his rookie year, he was worst in the red zone and worst on third down. And then – he identified that as the two things he was going to work on all off season. And then he comes back and before he got injured, they were best in the league on third down and best in the league in the red zone. So I think, you know, whatever he puts his mind to doing, he puts almost superhuman effort to doing it. So in this case, I'm sure it's being put towards his rehab and then being put towards how maybe he can preserve his body a little bit better and then how he can get the team back to where it needs to be. And I think it's funny because like, I think he was a mentor to Foles in a lot of ways. And because Foles said Carson was in his ear when he needed him. Now I think Foles is going to have a little bit of a mentorship to do for Carson, I think. So, you know, I, I think there's, it's, it's funny how this is kind of played back and forth. I, I do think Foles will stay. I think he wants to stay at least for one more year. And then he's a free agent. And then I guess maybe get his payday then. I, I think he'll seek his payday next off season. Uh, that, that would be my best guess. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the pieces are there. I, I think the personnel are there and there's more to it than that. So I, I think really, they need to focus on the rest of it, you know, just keeping everything uh, kind of status quo and keeping everything, keeping everything in perspective and keeping the magic going from this year. Yeah. The good thing for Nick Foles is while people in Disney world might not have recognized him, he'll certainly be a familiar face in Philly and we'll probably never have to buy a drink or another meal for at least the remainder of this decade and probably for the rest of his days when he ends up going to wherever he might be in Philadelphia or whatever the next team might be. I think it definitely will be interesting. We know that the Philadelphia fan is very hard on its sports teams, but as you mentioned, this might be a little bit more of an exception to the rule than in years past in the Andy Reid, Donovan McNabb era, where this could be something that's enjoyed at least for a couple seasons before the rumblings start again of if you're not winning, why aren't you winning? And that's something to deal with. So I'm glad you got to be front and center for a lot of it and share some of your stories tonight about the experience in general, because as we mentioned, this will be something that is remembered for a very long time. Yeah, I, and I'm glad that, you know, kind of the prevailing thing seems to be most people are, even though they're, in general, don't like the Eagles, can at least respect what we did. And, and that's, you know, we, we, we like kind of being in the center of everyone not liking us. But, right, we we just want some respect where it's due. So I, I think we can all live with that mindset, and we're, we're just pumped that it happened. Thanks again for coming on, Eric. Now we're on to baseball season. Yeah, can't wait. I'm I'm still not sure I'll make my spring training trip, but if I if, if so, I'll have some thoughts from there to share. So yeah, I can't wait for baseball. Thanks again to Eric for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. 
Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts. For the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, one's found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Get Out, which Rotten Tomatoes describes, Now that Chris and his girlfriend, Rose, have reached the the meet-the-parents milestone of dating, she invites him for a weekend getaway upstate with Missy and Dean. At first, Chris reads the family's overly accommodating behavior as nervous attempts to deal with their daughter's interracial relationship. But as the weekend progresses, a series of increasingly disturbing discoveries lead him to a truth that he could have never imagined. I actually watched this movie over the weekend and can safely say it did not disappoint to say the least. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Jordan Peele, one of the stars of the show Key and Peele, wrote and directed a horror movie. You know, one of the stars and writers of the forgettable comedy Keanu. If that's all you know about Jordan Peele, do you think that movie works? Even if you saw the trailers? Even if you knew it was a horror comedy? Not a chance. Do you see that movie earning a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes? Or a February release getting nominated for Best Picture? If I told you in the beginning of 2017 all that information, you'd tell me to get out. Peele's directorial debut, Get Out, was a box office hit that critics lauded. The buzz continued for about 11 months as the film earned four Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. All this because it's so much more than a horror comedy. Let's go to the tape. On the surface, sure this is a horror comedy, and it works as a horror comedy. It is frightening to put yourself in the shoes of the main character, played by Oscar-nominated Daniel Kaluuya. In his case, Kaluuya's character is a black man dating a white woman who goes to visit her parents and all of their white friends. Fearing they are racist, he is a little uneasy. The brilliance of Jordan Peele's writing is that he is able to pull us all in with this plot. We can all relate. Although I am not black, I understand the racial tension that exists today. Even without the racial element, we all know what it feels like to be an outsider, or that you don't belong. We all have had to meet our girlfriend's parents, and dreaded it. Even something as small as we've all been to a party that we just don't want to be at, that we'd rather be home. The situations he gets into obviously are much worse than he could have imagined, and the mystery keeps audiences on the edge of their seats. It's thrilling and scary with a solid and relatable story. Everything a horror movie should be. Peele obviously also has the comedy covered, as he is known for his comedic chops. My favorite character in the film is Rod, played by Lil Rel Howery. He has one of my favorite scenes in a movie this year. He's absolutely hilarious and makes the movie a lot of fun to balance the harsher elements. The acting is excellent, obviously from the Oscar-nominated Kaluuya, but Allison Williams' performance should not be overlooked. She is unbelievably charming in the beginning of the film, everything a guy would want from his girlfriend. She's funny and truly shows her love. As the movie progresses, her character's depth increases, but I won't spoil it. Let's not forget Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Keener, Bradley Whitford, Caleb Landry-Jones, and Stephen Root. Strong cast. With all this, you have a solid film, but you don't have a Best Picture nominee. You need the award-caliber writing of Peel to provide layers. Give the audience a reason to come back. And trust me, there are plenty of reasons to revisit this film. Some I will not touch on because I only have five minutes, and I don't want to spoil anything. 
The movie is filled with hints to what is happening that you pick up on the next time around. There are also parallels between Kaluuya's story and his best friend Rod's choices. Kaluuya also has his own arc. He has to face a tragedy of his past and finally try to overcome it. On top of all that, Get Out is a racial commentary, which couldn't be more prevalent in the year it was released. It's one of the most important films of 2017. When I saw it the first time, that's what I thought. It's an important film that is good, but nothing great. Now that I've had plenty of time to digest the movie and watch it again, I saw the things I had missed, and now Get Out just gets better and better with each viewing. I just watched it again so I could give a better review, and I caught even more things. It's a great movie I originally overlooked, and now that we're through the entire year, it's without a doubt one of the best. Oh yeah, and the ending is perfect. The bottom line, Get Out works for all audiences. On the surface, it works as a solid horror comedy, so fans of the genre will appreciate and enjoy the film. The events of the film are scary and relatable, and the humor evens out the heavy moments to make for an entertaining theater experience. For those looking for a deeper film with parallels to today's world and brilliant movie making, Get Out has all of that too. It's a smart film that gives you more and more with each watch. I think that's why this movie has such a high rating on Rotten Tomatoes, because it reaches every fan base. I'll compare Get Out to Jackie Robinson. A great baseball player and the most important baseball player ever, Robinson changed the landscape of a sport forever. Get Out has not made that impact but it survived almost a year of films to earn a Best Picture nomination. That only happens for transcendent films. Films like Get Out. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And allow me to add the obligatory, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.